In modern conversation, to say you're obsessed is basically a term of endearment. You love it, you're a fan, but definitely in a harmless way. But at its core, obsession, as Psychology Today writes, amounts to the same thing in all cases, addiction. And that's when things can get dangerous. For the people on this countdown, their addictions stem from many places, jealousy, delusion, even political paranoia. Speaking of politics, number one doesn't just involve a very dangerous obsession, it puts the life of a former US president at risk. Hey all you weirdos, welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the ParCast research gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 dangerous obsessions, part two. So I think everybody's obsessed with something, Yeah. but I would like to think all of my obsessions are healthy. But I think kind of like by nature, I suppose obsession can get unhealthy pretty easily without you even knowing it. So maybe I just don't know it. I think that's like the whole idea of obsession. I think so. Personally, I think the only things that I recognize that I'm obsessed with are Bravo shows and Drew, but not in like a weird way, not in like a bad way. In a lovely way. In a gorgeous way. You know, some of the people on my side of the list, at least, really took obsession to new levels. Of course, I have a few celebs, maybe an author sprinkled here or there. We love it. I'm not saying more than that, okay? Okay. You're not going to get me to say anything. Oh, okay. I won't try to. But you know what? I, too, speaking of secrets, <laughs> spicy tea oh, that we have here, I, it. too, have some well-known celebs on my side of the list, but it's my number one that's really going to, like, knock your socks off and around the corner. Okay. Get ready for your socks to be around the corner. You won't be able to grab them. I'm actually the uh, not wearing socks. Well, that's because they're around the corner. I already, already knocked them off. Preemptively around the corner. <laughs> it involves a celeb, a very well-known celeb, one of my favorite celebs, in fact. Oh. A former US president, who one might say is a well-known celeb, at least in America. Yeah. And a weird, strange need to impress said celeb. Okay, you're covering like every single possible base you could. Yeah, pretty like much. bases are loaded. Oh, they're loaded. I'm excited to hear what it's all about. Elena has five dangerous obsessions on the list, that is. And so <laughs> do I, but neither of us knows who the other one has. Let's start the countdown. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 10. I'll start us off with number 10, Madonna stalker Robert Dewey Hoskins. In 2012, then 54-year-old Hoskins escaped a mental health facility where he was being treated following a stint in prison for stalking Madonna in the late 90s. After he walked out of the facility, he turned his attention to actress Halle Berry, making threats toward the Oscar winner before being caught and sent right back to the hospital. So in 1996, Robert Dewey Hoskins climbed over the wall of Madonna's Hollywood Hills home and threatened to kill her if she didn't agree to marry him. Like, worst proposal of all time. Yeah, that's not gonna end how you think it ends. It definitely didn't. Mm -mm. Hoskins was confronted by Madonna's personal security guard who ended up shooting Hoskins twice. Madonna testified against him in court, reportedly saying she was, quote, incredibly disturbed to be in the same room with him. I don't blame her. No, of course not. I can't imagine having that experience. Yeah. That'd be so scary. CNN also reported that Madonna testified that Hoskins climbed over the wall around her house repeatedly. Oh. Like, not just once. No. That's what repeatedly means. Yeah, that's more than once. After Hoskins' conviction, Madonna said in a statement that she hoped it would, quote, let other stalking victims know that the system can and does work. Hoskin was then jailed for 10 years, where he continued to threaten Madonna from jail. What? After his release, he was sent to the Metropolitan State Hospital in Los Angeles to be treated and helped adapt back into society. But in February 2012, he somehow just walked right out of that facility. He started stalking Halle Berry at this time and made threats toward her, which made her want to move overseas. I really don't blame her. No, if that was going on for me, I'd be like, Bye, especially yeah. if I was a celebrity and like had the means. Well, and stalking is just one of those things that uh, you must feel like you have no way out, that there's nothing anybody can do to help you. No, exactly. You just have to put as much distance between you and that person as you can. That's what I would think too. And on top of that, Barry was in the middle of a custody battle. So she had to formally make a request to a judge to let her move out of oh. the country because she was that scared of Hoskins. Oh my God. But thankfully he was caught pretty quickly and returned to the facility. I don't think you should let him go wandering around anymore. Probably not. Maybe, like, keep a closer eye. Nine. At number nine is Taylor Swift stalker Frank Edward Hoover. Hoover was relentless in his pursuits of Swift that include violating a restraining order after he followed her to her private jet after a concert. How does that happen? Yeah, that sentence alone, following her to her private jet after a concert, is so, like, out of this galaxy, I can't (laughs) It really is. But he also found himself in legal trouble after emails came to light that he had been sending to Taylor Swift's dad, one of which stated that one day, quote, we are going to end all the Swifts. Lovely. What? Mm-hmm. So October 2016, Taylor Swift has finished a concert in Austin, Texas, and was headed back to her private plane. 
As we all do. Oh, yeah. Like, again. Last Thursday. <laughs> you exactly. Know. In pursuit of her motorcade, Frank Edward Hoover, the man who at the time had a restraining order against him to stay away from um, Taylor Swift. Good. So he probably shouldn't be there. Hoover was not to be within 500 feet of her. So definitely not supposed definitely to be near her. Somehow, even though he's not supposed to be within 500 feet of her, he got within 50 feet of Swift at the airport before her bodyguards notice. Like, how big was this entourage? And also, I would have hired new bodyguards if they didn't notice that yeah. this one person who's not supposed to be in 500 feet of me is right there. Like, the one person you have a restraining order on should be the person that everyone's looking out at. Correct. Yeah, like, he shouldn't be able to just, like, whoop, just slip, like, in. slip in a crowd, right? Now, Hoover repeatedly said he just wanted a picture and to, quote, possibly accompany Taylor wherever she goes. <laughs> I just like, want to take one photo and also be with you everywhere yeah. at every possible time. Thank like, you. sir, no. Honestly, like, I just want one photo and I want to become, you know, attached to you for the rest of our days. What's that's the big deal. That's really all I'm asking. Needless to say, he was arrested for violating the restraining order. Yeah. He was held on a $100,000 bail, sentenced to 10 years of probation, and remained monitored by GPS. That's good. That's a very smart thing to yes. do. Then in 2018, an indictment revealed threatening emails from 2015 to 2016 from Hoover to Taylor Swift's father. Ooh. That's where it gets weird for me. Yeah. And imagine being her father. Yeah. Like they weren't used to this life before she no. really like got so famous. And it's like, that's your baby. Yeah. So some of them stated things, including quote, without her, I walk the earth alone forever and she'll continue to experience failed relationships that break her heart. Oh, quote, God is going to kill all the Swifts and then the issue will go away. What issue? You're the issue. You're the issue, sir. He also emailed a pic of Taylor with the caption, quote, a whore named Satan dies. Like, I'm sorry, put this man away and throw away the key. What is happening? Bye. Bye. You need to go away. Yeah, see ya. Never. As part of his sentencing, it was reported that Hoover had to complete psychological and drug testing, attend substance abuse classes, surrender all firearms, and stay miles away from the Swifts or risk prison time. But like, I don't know, maybe he should just like do time? Yeah, he now. violated a restraining order. I feel like this all kind of adds up to him being a scary individual. Yeah, he was like stay away from her. threatening them, basically. It's really scary. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of Dangerous Obsessions Part 2 is President Andrew Jackson's assassination attempt. This story isn't just about President Jackson's would-be assassin trying to kill a sitting president. It's also about the political obsession that consumed Jackson following the attempt on his life. Two for one special, if you will. We know the 19th century was wild in, and this is another crazy story to add to the list. January 30th, 1835, President Andrew Jackson was leaving the funeral for South Carolina Representative Warren Davis that had been held in the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. He gets approached by Richard Lawrence, an unemployed house painter who believed the president had killed his father. He had not. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering. <laughs> Just a side note, he had not. He also believed that he was owed money that the president was blocking him from getting. He was not. Again, just clarifying, <laughs> he was not. Side note. Safe to say, he was not of sound mind. But he was determined to remedy the problems he thought were real. 
Lawrence walked up to Jackson, pulled out his pistol, and pulled the trigger. But the gun misfired. Ooh. Angered, Andrew Jackson took his walking cane and started hitting his wannabe assassin. Yes. It's like housewives level drama in 1835. <laughs> I came that's, for this. That's amazing. He's just beating him with his cane. He's like, what? While Jackson was clubbing him, Lawrence attempted to shoot the president again, and the gun misfired for a second time. It's time to hang it up, man. Andy Cohen's going to have a field day with this. Yeah, you got to hang it up after that second one. Yeah, for real. Finally, Richard Lawrence was pulled away from the president and taken away. But immediately, Jackson became obsessed with who would have sent someone to kill him, which... That's very fair. I think I, I would have too. Yeah, I was going to say, you know what? Same. This me too as well. He became addicted to spewing unfounded lies, accusations, and talking about the day he almost died. I feel like you earned that a you little did. bit. Like, for you sure. can talk about that for a while. Just like a couple weeks. Yeah, that's one of those two truths and a lie thing that you can use a lot. Right. <laughs> Jackson was very suspicious that Lawrence was hired by the rival Whig party, and his vice president, Martin Van Buren, was also paranoid about that and carried a gun when he went to the Senate. Ooh. Smithsonian Magazine reported on a British theorist who was at the Capitol that day, saying, quote, Before two hours were over, the name of almost every eminent politician was mixed up with that of the poor man who caused the uproar. Like, poor man? He's an <laughs> attempted murderer. He tried yeah. to shoot the president. It's like, let's not give him too much here. That poor, poor man. I know the gun misfired, but like his intention was for it to actually fire. Twice. Yeah. Like his intention was rather yeah. clear. But Andrew Jackson's paranoid rants about who was after him were never proven. Richard Lawrence spent the rest of his life in a mental hospital. And in terms of historic facts, Andrew Jackson is the first American president to have someone attempt to assassinate him. I don't really know if I would want that record. I was, yeah, I was just going to say, like, cool fact. Gotta go to someone, I guess. Again, cool two truths and a lie thing yeah. to have. Cool fact, and now a weird fact. Years later, the guns that Richard Lawrence used were tested and fired normally on the first try. The odds that they both would misfire that day? One in 125,000. Huh. Wild. That's weird. Right? Seven. At number seven this week is Justin Timberlake's stalker, Karen McNeil. Timberlake took out a restraining order on McNeil in 2009 after she broke into his home and trespassed onto his property several times within one week. That'll do it. BBC reported on court papers from the hearing stating McNeil's quote, motivation and obsession have become more ominous, intrusive, and threatening. Oh, good. At the time Timberlake secured the restraining order in 2009, it's reported Karen McNeil was homeless and in psychiatric custody due to her repeated stalking of him. During one break-in, she left a note that court papers called bizarre. I have more questions about that. Yeah, like what about it was? What was it? I need to know everything. I mean, the fact that there was a note left by a stalker who broke into your home in and of itself is bizarre, but like, I need to know more. Just give me all the deets. Yeah. McNeil also allegedly turned up at Timberlake's house in a taxi with all her belongings, claiming she was destined to marry him. Okay, she's manifesting. You know, this isn't McNeil's first go around with this kind of behavior. She previously stalked Guns N' Roses lead singer Axl Rose. She believed that they were married and would communicate using telepathy, which 
Justin Timberlake, Axl Rose. I don't understand the. <laughs> Where is the correlation? There's no type here. Make Except it make musician, sense. I guess. <laughs> That's all I got. Yeah. McNeil showed up several times at Axl Rose's home and in 1997 was ordered by a court to stay away from him. Yeah. Her actions towards Axl Rose in the 90s suggested the possibility that she was experiencing delusional beliefs. And it seems as though she may have been suffering from the same with Timberlake years later. Which is just really sad. I was going to say, this one is really sad. Because she's not just going in there saying like, I love you and I want to be with you. If you don't say you'll marry me, I'm going to kill you. She's literally like, no, we are literally destined to be together. And then with Axl Rose, she's like, no, we literally are married. Yeah, like she doesn't understand. There's a problem there. Timberlake was not at the protective order hearing, but in a written statement requesting it, he said, quote, Miss McNeil's ever increasingly aggressive and harassing conduct are extremely distressing. I fear for my personal safety and that of my family and friends. She was legally required to stay away from Timberlake for three years. That doesn't seem very long. Yeah, and the thing is, there's clearly something going on here that she needs, like, a lot of intensive help. This is definitely just somebody who like really could have used treatment. And even if she's ordered to stay away from Timberlake for three years, it's like, that's still scary. Yeah, like that, exactly. Who's to say she cares? Right, like why can't order? we put her in a program or something? Yeah, I think it's just a real missed opportunity to like give her some mental health treatment here. I agree. Now there's no current updates on where Karen McNeil is now, but no new stalking charges seem to have popped up. So. That's a plus. And hopefully maybe she got some help. I hope she's getting the help she needs. Right. Six. Also on our list at number six is author Charles Dickens and socialite Jane Bigelow. Dickens was pretty famous by the time he traveled to America in 1867 to tour the country doing live readings of his work. Little did he know he'd be meeting socialite Jane Bigelow, who was also well-known in her own regards, for causing scenes. She would have been on The Real Housewives of her time. (laughs) While in Boston, Dickens and Bigelow met. Per The Times UK, it didn't take long before she started looking at the famous author as, quote, her personal property. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, that's a red flag. Yeah, that's like some Regina George type stuff. Now, Jane Bigelow was married to a New York lawyer turned American ambassador to Paris, John Bigelow. Apparently, her erratic behavior became notorious and it held back her husband's career. In one incident, she allegedly jovially slapped the Prince of Wales on the back. You get the idea of the kind of a reality show ready person that we're dealing with here. Yes. Charles Dickens arrived in America in November of 1867 and happened to be staying at the same hotel as the Bigelows in Boston. Dickens ended up dining with the couple and playing games, but didn't really enjoy being around Jane. But he liked John, so he stuck it out. The wife of Dickens' publisher wrote in her diary that Dickens, quote, sympathized with John because he also had a wife who he looked down on not cool like not something to bro out over so precious cute what a bromance yay cool well jane bigelow felt the complete opposite about charles dickens Uh oh she began threatening other women who showed interest in him and harassed anyone else who tried to get near him while in the bigelow's hometown of new york for one of his events dickens had a female fan bring flowers to his room and jane was not having it jane was so jealous of dickens getting attention from another woman she physically assaulted her when she exited his hotel room (laughs) like physically assaulted a woman who was like here mr charles dickens have some flowers i'm a fan of your work 
Also, have you seen Charles Dickens? <laughs> yes. Like, I'm not saying anything like nasty about Jenna. I'm just saying like he doesn't strike me as like a Fabio type. No, no, not well, necessarily. Like, falling at his feet. Well, Jane Bigelow is at his feet daily. His mind, I suppose. His beautiful writing. Beautiful mind. Well, also, some people say that this was one of the first known accounts of celebrity obsession. That's amazing. The publisher's wife kept more stories about Jane in her diary that have been used in other books about Dickens, referred to as the Bigelow Terror. Yep, that's what it's referred to. So get that library card because you know. Oh, there's some more good Jane Bigelow tea out there. I want to drink all of the tea. I just poured a lot of it and I'm ready to consume some. Give me more. Okay, that story of Jane Bigelow and Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens, Charles. is outrageous. I also had never heard about that before. I had not heard about it. And we learn about Charles Dickens like a lot around here, I feel like. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But the fact that she was married to like a prominent lawyer and like met him once with her husband and was like, oh no, that's mine now. Like it was just what? I also would love to know what the ambassador thought. I gotta know all about this. I think he was just like, wow, Jane's Wilden, for Give sure. Give me a miniseries on this. Why has this not been turned into a miniseries? Yeah, I also... I need to watch the whole thing. I needed that one after, like, the Karen McNeil and yeah. Justin Timberlake, because that was heavy. Sad. I feel sad for Karen. That one was sad. I hope she's doing better. Me too. And then also Andrew Jackson, I didn't know that either. No, I had just, no like, idea. Just, like, whipping out a walking stick to beating not get assassinated. Assailant. Yeah. What I else is it. gonna happen here? I don't know. This is, like, really wild. It is. I had no idea this much stalking happened to two celebrities. Who knew? Yeah. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. In films like Pirates of the Caribbean, they're portrayed as swaggering anti-heroes. In books like Treasure Island, they're fearsome villains. But who were they really? That's the question that Real Pirates, the new Spotify original from Parcast, answers. The whole thing about a pirate ship is that they were heavily manned. But you could have a hundred pirates on board, so these are floating violence factories. At the same time, pirates were really fascinating characters, in a way. If you were born poor, you stayed poor. Pirates, on the other hand, they were able to transcend that social boundary. They didn't see themselves just as thieves and brigands, they saw themselves as social revolutionaries. Set sail under the black flag alongside notorious outlaws like Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie and Mary Reed. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting November 15th. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of Dangerous Obsessions, part two. Starting off the second half of our list is Jennifer Aniston's stalker, Jason Payton. 
Peyton drove across the country from Pennsylvania to Los Angeles back in 2010 on a mission to find and marry Jennifer Aniston. When police caught up to him, he was in possession of items that pointed to the fact he may have been ready to show his love for her in a very dangerous way. This one is scary. Yeah, I know this one and I'm like, okay. I hate this one. So when he left his home in Pennsylvania, he also left a note which triggered his father to call police and tip them off to what his son was trying to do. So already scary. Yeah. When that's what's happening here. He knew his son needed help and may pose a threat. Peyton had hurt himself and his mother in the past. That's good parenting in a tough love kind of way. Well, and it is, and he wants his son to get help. He cares about him. Yeah, like he knew something bad was gonna happen that was one, gonna hurt somebody else, but Mm -hmm. also gonna hurt his son. Right, that's smart. Jason Peyton spent eight days driving around LA trying to find her and had carved in all caps, I love you, Jennifer Aniston, onto his car. I feel like if I saw that, like, I wouldn't think too much of it. I'd be like, oh, wow, like, very big fan in Hollywood. Makes sense. But then imagine seeing that as Jennifer Aniston. Yeah. That would be, like, really overwhelming. Horrifying. Yeah. Because as an outsider, you're sitting there being like, oh, that's, like, kind of funny. That's ridiculous. Because it's so over the top. Right. Because also, we don't live in that world where this is, like... A threat. Yeah. So this is such a huge show of, like danger and mm-hmm. like red flag red flag but you wouldn't see it from the outside you just think it's somebody funny exactly like maybe they were getting their car painted and they just decided to carve something into it stupid right but that's terrifying now police luckily tracked him down before he found aniston hurt himself or hurt anyone else which is good thank goodness when they took him into custody he was carrying quote a sharp object duct tape and love notes addressed to aniston so That takes it to a different level. It definitely does. So there may have also been like an alleged kidnapping plot in his head as well with this whole thing. I mean, those those items point to something bad. Yeah. I mean, a sharp object in duct tape. Like those are not innocuous items with what he was doing. And apparently with the note he had left before doing it. Right, exactly. So a judge granted a restraining order that kept him a hundred yards or more from Aniston at all times. That's good. Court docs described Peyton as, quote, an obsessed, mentally ill, and delusional stalker with a history of violence and criminal stalking who drove cross-country in his delusional mission to locate and marry Aniston, with whom he believes he is in a relationship. See, and that's the thing again. It's like, he really obviously believes this. And this one's a little different just because of the addition of, like, the sharp object. Yeah, like the potential of harm. That's a lot of, like, premeditation for I'm going to do something bad. For sure. But it's still sad because there's clearly something else going on here. Mm -hmm. But I feel so bad for Jennifer Aniston. I mean, like, knowing all this, that somebody was driving across the country with items to possibly kidnap and harm you. Yeah, no, that's terrifying. What? And I think it's sad, too, that, like, a lot of times in the media, we, like, see these things. And I think a lot of times people kind of, like, laugh it off. And it's not really something to laugh at on either end. Because you have to put yourself in that other person's shoes yeah jennifer aniston's shoes like she must have been terrified and then in his shoes he needs help definitely needs help now jason payton was placed on a psychiatric hold after being detained and hopefully since then he has gotten the help he needs but it's still really scary because jennifer aniston knows that this person was hunting her across the country yeah i just don't understand like how celebrities do it like how they just walk around day to day like that it's too scary man and then there's not a lot that they do for this stuff which is even worse yeah and stalking laws i mean are still relatively new yeah they need to get 
light years from what they are. They really do. Four. Landing at number four this week is Yolanda Saldivar and Selena Quintanilla Perez. We talked about these two during our shocking celebrity assassinations countdown, because sadly, this obsession went to a deadly place. Yolanda was a crazed fan turned friend and business manager of Selena's until March 31st, 1995, when she shot and killed the singer in a Texas hotel. What we didn't talk about in that previous episode was how many people around Selena were worried about Yolanda's possessive behavior. Oh, you gotta listen. Listen yeah. to that stuff. Seriously, because... It's hard to at the time. It's always hindsight. I was just gonna say hindsight is twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. But that all began with her first becoming a really big fan. In 1991, Yolanda approached Selena's father and got permission to start her fan club. He agreed and she became the president. Fan clubs were like a big deal in the 90s. Oh yeah, you could write into fan clubs in like Teen Beat magazine. I know, I said that like I was like a part of the 90s and like I wasn't like just six years old. Yeah. Wait, I don't know why I said six because I was born in 96, <laughs> goodbye. Anyways, the fan club, it did well. Selena and her family gave Yolanda more responsibilities, including being in charge of managing Selena's boutiques that sold her clothing line. Yolanda also reportedly managed Selena's business checking account and had a key to her house. Like, you have to remember, she started as the president of a fan club. Yeah, that's a... A climb. A big climb. It's the climb. But after Selena's death, people who were around Selena and Yolanda did interviews and said Yolanda showed very erratic and possessive behavior towards Selena. Selena's then director of marketing told the Washington Post, quote, I think it's a matter of when the artist becomes popular, some people become obsessed, especially someone close to the artist. She obviously went too far. One fashion designer who worked with Selena also talked to the Washington Post about Yolanda and said, quote, she was very vindictive. She was very possessive of Selena. And eventually Yolanda's possessive grip on all things Selena started to crack when Selena's father got calls about missed payments and fans not getting their merch. Plus there was the suspicion that she was embezzling. Yolanda was then fired. Then on March 31st, 1995, Selena set up a meeting to chat with Yolanda and get some paperwork back from her. Instead, Yolanda pulled out a gun. Selena tried to run, but was shot in the back. Selena was able to stumble down to the lobby and tell people who killed her. Which every time I say that, I'm like, that's just so remarkable. Yeah, every single time I hear that part of the story, I'm like, what? Seriously, like that's a big deal. Yolanda was in an almost 10 hour standoff with police before she was finally arrested. And to this day, Yolanda asserts that the shooting was accidental. No, like we all know that it wasn't. She received a life sentence, but is eligible for parole in March of 2025. And the negotiator who was on the phone with Yolanda during the standoff said, quote, she wanted someone to hear her story, that they are best friends, that she loves Selena. She admires Selena. She would do anything for her. Like, even after hurting her and killing her, she was obsessed. And that's so offensive to her family. Yeah, like, sitting I'm there her being best like, friend. I loved her. Like, I you do anything for her? her. You killed her. Yeah, so messed up. And after she went to prison, word got out about Yolanda's home, which was described as a shrine to Selena. I, hate I just, that. like you said, I just can't imagine being her family. Yeah, no, I hate it. Three. 
Number three on our countdown of Dangerous Obsessions, part two, is The Man Who Killed John Lennon, Mark David Chapman. Also someone who appeared on our shocking celebrity assassinations countdown, Chapman shot and killed John Lennon outside Lennon's New York apartment building on December 8, 1980. Chapman's obsession was one that was rooted in jealousy before turning deadly that day. He admitted he was envious of Lennon and his life and wanted, quote, self-glory, period. Back then, Mark David Chapman was a fan of John Lennon, but was jealous of the way he lived and irritated by certain things he said. He specifically didn't like when Lennon said the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. Chapman's wife Gloria once said, quote, he was angry that Lennon would preach love and peace, but yet have millions. Seems like you thought Lennon was kind of a walking contradiction, but at the same time wanted to be just like him and have the life he had. So he thought that John Lennon was a walking contradiction and he himself was also a, a walking, walking contradiction. contradiction. Exactly, like I don't want you to have it, and I'm going to get mad at it that you have it. But if I have it, it's okay. And also, I'm it's your fine. biggest fan. But also, I hate I'm your biggest you. fan. Like, that makes sense. Yeah. At his 2020 parole hearing, Chapman told the commissioners, quote, At the time, my thinking was he has all this money, lives in this beautiful apartment, and he is into music representing a more cautious lifestyle, a more giving lifestyle. He made me angry and jealous compared to the way I was living at the time. There was jealousy in there. Which is like, okay, cool. You were jealous. You can't kill someone because of that. Right. I want it, so I'm going to take it. Like, you're not going to get it that way. I don't understand what the point was. And that's exactly what it is. It's like, what did you think that you were going to get out of yeah, that? Yeah, nothing. That jealousy festered and caused Chapman to leave his wife in Hawaii, telling her he needed to go find himself. When really, he had the premeditated plan to go kill John Lennon. So on December 8th, 1980, Chapman waited outside Lennon's apartment building in New York. Lennon left to go to the recording studio and signed an autograph for Chapman before he got in the car. That always freaks me out. Mm -hmm, I know, that's the creepiest part of the whole story. And there's, the, oh, it's a picture of it. Ooh. And it's just so messed up. It's like you asked for his autograph before yeah. you murdered him. And there's literally a picture of him sitting there while yeah. he signs the autograph. Ugh. So creepy. When he returned from the studio, Chapman was waiting. He walked up to the singer and shot and killed him. During that 2020 parole hearing, Chapman revealed he'd become a devout Christian in prison. Don't they all? Certainly do. And had he been released, he'd live his life like an evangelist. No, thank you. And also, like, no, thank you, I'm sir. supposed to trust you on no. that? Like, okay. Get out of here. No. Now, spoiler alert, he did not get out of prison. Uh, his comments on wanting glory actually sealed the deal that kept him locked up. Good. Which, LOL. Lols. Maybe don't say stuff like that. Oh, that last one always makes me so sad. Like, yeah. it's just, it's so ridiculous. And so, yeah. I mean, obviously so unnecessary. That goes without saying, but. The fact that it's rooted in just pure jealousy and envy is so much grosser. Right, because it's like, sure, maybe you don't like some of the things he's doing, so then just don't do them yourself. That's what I don't understand. Stop listening to him. Like, you can turn the Beatles Shut it off. off. Exactly. Yeah, you don't have to listen to everything he says. He's not waking up in the morning next to you in bed and being like, hey, Mark, let me tell you about things. Right, so, like, you right. have to go seek him out. And then Selena, I love Selena, and the whole <sighs> Yolanda thing makes me so angry. It breaks my heart every time I hear it, especially when you hear, like, 
that day she was just going to talk to her and get some paperwork back. And you're like, oh, I just want to be like, no. Like, I just want to like press rewind and have somebody else go get yeah, the paperwork. It kills me. Or just like mail me the paperwork. I'm done. These things freak me out. It's man. scary. And I'm telling you, number one is really gonna, it's knocking your socks off. I'm keeping that promise. I know. And mine are already off. They're gone. So. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of Dangerous Obsessions Part 2. At number two is Kira Knightley and Mark Revel. This one lands this high because the creep factor and escalation of bizarre behavior from Revel makes it really unpredictably frightening. In 2016, Revel appeared in court and pleaded guilty to charges after admitting he was in love with Knightley. The court heard about many incidents of him showing up to the actress's home, including meowing through the mail slot. I'm out. I'm out. I just got chills down my back and I've already read that like a few times. A human meowing Meowing through through the mail slot. No. Terrifying. Over the course of three months, Revel kept showing up to Knightley's home where she lived with her husband and then 18-month-old baby. Oh, no. So she's like no. in like mama bear mode, yeah. too. On one of his first visits, Revel drew an arrow and chalk on the sidewalk, pointing to the front door. Ew. Then he started delivering handwritten letters. He also sent postcards with cats on them and meowed like a cat through the mail slot. I hate this. It's like the most bizarre. I hate this so much. I really do. And Revel, who is a musician, also delivered a USB drive with cat-themed music on it and a note saying, listen to my music. Also, I'm not entirely sure what cat-themed music is, if I'm being honest. Because as soon as you said that, I was like, is it just music about cats? I'm just thinking of like the Purina like commercial on TV where they just sing meow the over and over. One? Yeah. Yeah. That's all I can think of. I hate this. I don't think I ever want to find out now, to nope. be honest. I didn't want to know this. So the no. fact that I'm knowing it now is a lot. Yeah. Well, one delivery from Revel featured more cats and a note that read, quote, that's you on the right, the stupid looking one. And that's me on the left. What is with the cats? Thank you. I thought that was going to be explained at some point. I'm like, what is the what is, is there, with the cats? Is there something about Kira Knightley and cats that I don't know? I mean, I don't know a lot about her. I don't so either. Did she play a cat? I don't like what is happening. I have no idea. But also, if you call me a stupid looking cat, I'm also going to be like way angrier than oh, I was before. Rude. Like, get out of here. That's really rude. Like, why are you stalking me then if I'm such a stupid cat? Yeah, get out of here. Well, he was finally arrested after Knightley's husband chased him down the street one day. Good which for like, him. <laughs> Get it. Snaps for the husband. Get it. Knightley reportedly said in court, Since I reported the incident to police after he meowed through my letterbox and had a scuffle with my husband on my doorstep, we are now looking to move house outside the borough. I think that was a good call. Yeah, especially you have an 18-month-old baby. That must be horrifying. No, it's so scary. You will be shocked to find out that Revel has previous obsession problems with the law. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't realize that it didn't start with just this. It's so shocking, I know. In 2011, he was convicted for harassing a nurse to go out with him before showing up to her home naked. I hate this guy. Yeah, me as well. For the Knightley case, Revel received an eight-week suspended sentence and was slapped with an indefinite restraining order. Mm -mm. Like, that doesn't seem like enough for me. No, definitely not. And get this. He was arrested just weeks later for sending menacing tweets and indecent photos of children to Knightley, even after a restraining order. I'm sorry, is he in jail now? 
like forever and I, always i really genuinely hope so forever him and jill best friends forever and always never depart seriously the whole what? thing and the fact that it just like started with meow no through your mailbox no. like literally sit no. there and imagine hearing at your front door Meow. No, I won't like, do that's that. That's so scary. I will not that's, imagine that. I have chills running down through no, my, I like, hate my that. spine right now. That's so like menacing and messed up and just no. And then you're sending like photos of children. Like what is wrong? Yeah. With, put him away forever. Something is drastically wrong in there. Yeah, definitely needs to go to prison. Oh, I'm so angry for Kira Knightley now. Me too. Thanks a lot. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 dangerous obsessions, part two John Hingley Jr. and Jodie Foster. The level of obsession it takes to attempt to assassinate a sitting American president in order to impress the celebrity you love is what gets John Hinckley Jr. to the top of this list. He was not only a danger to Jodie Foster, but anyone he saw fit to make his case to get her to love him back. Unfortunately, President Reagan was the pawn in his game back in 1981. So who is John Hinckley Jr., you ask? I did. I heard you ask. You wanted to know. It was quiet. It was off the record. Yeah, you heard it. Hinckley is from Dallas, Texas, where as he got into his teen years in the 70s, he became much more isolated, which it's an all too familiar detail that we hear in all of these. It really is. He spent time just playing guitar and dreaming of being a songwriter. He soon packed it up, left college, and moved to Los Angeles in 1976 to chase that music dream. Which all sounds like, okay, get it. Yeah. I feel like it's also how, like, some of these things really start off, where it's like, you have a big dream, and you think you're going to make it big, and you have all these expectations, and then when it comes crashing down, that already is so disappointing. But if your, like, mental health is on the brink, it's really going to take a toll on you. Absolutely. Even more. you're moving to a new place. You don't know anyone. You're starting off. You're thinking, like, this brave new world that's going to open up in front of you. Getting rejected is one of the hardest things in life for anybody. Of course. Anybody. Yeah. Like, the strongest will of us all. Getting rejected stinks. It does. But when your dreams are crushed, it's like the the Charles Manson of it all. It is. You know, it like is. He, he moves, he's going to be this songwriter, right for the Beach Boys. And yep. it's like, womp, womp, womp. I'm not saying it's clearly not a catalyst for doing something like this, but it's a bummer. Yeah, for sure. And we've seen it happen before. For sure. Now, this is when one of his obsessions started. As his dreams for a music career in L.A. weren't really panning out, he started taking refuge in watching the film Taxi Driver, which came out the same year Hinckley moved to L.A., 1976. It's a really weird film to find refuge in. Very strange. Like, that's not a comfort nope. like, movie that you whip out the Ben and no. Jerry's to. No, you definitely don't. Like, I watch Gilmore Girls when I need comfort. I watch Bravo. Yeah, there you go. Taxi Driver is the Martin Scorsese film starring Robert De Niro and Jodie Foster. De Niro is a taxi driver whose mental health deteriorates and manifests in violent ways, including an assassination attempt on a presidential candidate. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. At all. It does. Jodie Foster plays a young sex worker who De Niro's character tries to save from that kind of work. It's a very feel-good story. Oh, yeah. Coming-of-age classic. You know, we've all been there. Now, this is when the Jodie Foster obsession began. 
It kind of just panned out from there. Mm. Hinkley starts identifying with De Niro's character way too much, which leads to his obsession with a young Jodie Foster. Right. He starts writing her love letters, calling her, and he even travels to see her at Yale University where she's going to school. Which, by the way, Jodie Foster for the win. Yeah, BB alert. Brilliant, beautiful, wonderful, easy breezy, beautiful. I love her. This is when his obsession with Jodie and his delusions about the film crash together. Here they come. They're colliding. Yikes. He decides that he'll win her over by assassinating a politician. That'll always do the trick. Yeah. Jodie Foster, am I right? So... On March 30th, 1981, Hinckley writes Jodie Foster a letter where he tells her his plan. He wrote, quote, I will admit to you that the reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I just cannot wait any longer to impress you. By sacrificing my freedom and possibly my life, I hope to change your mind about me. Spoiler alert, it does not change her mind. I wasn't sitting here thinking that it was going to, but thank you for the alert. Yeah, I didn't. I don't know if you were waiting for that like sudden turn where it was like, and her mind was changed. I think if anything, it would only solidify her stance. Absolutely. So that brings us to the day in question. The same day the letter was written, Hinckley headed to the Washington Hilton where President Reagan had been speaking. When Reagan exited the building, Hinckley fired six times. Wow. He hit a police officer, a Secret Service officer, press secretary James Brady was shot in the head and paralyzed. Oh, that's like really heartbreaking. And President Reagan was shot in the left lung. So, so many people were hurt that day. Yeah, seriously. During the trial, Hinckley's mental health and the influence of taxi driver were used in his defense, obviously. Yeah. June 21st, 1982, Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity and sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. The verdict was not well received. After the trial, Hinckley wrote to the New York Times saying, quote, The shooting outside the Washington Hilton Hotel was the greatest love offering in the history of the world. I sacrificed myself and committed the ultimate crime in hopes of winning the heart of a girl. Like, was there not somebody checking his mail to make sure that he didn't say things like that yeah, to that doesn't sound awesome. the New York Times? doesn't sound awesome. So after the Reagan assassination attempt, the Secret Service made changes to how they protect the president, which, as good. they should, probably good. Press Secretary James Brady died in 2014, and the medical examiner called it a homicide because of the damaging effects from the shooting. But no murder charges were pursued, which I'm like, what? Yeah, I mean, come on. If there's a homicide, there's yeah. a murderer. And that's so. really sad. That is terrible. The 1993 Brady Bill put more restrictions on gun ownership, including background checks. Important. Which, very important. And the use of the insanity plea in trials got some tighter restrictions as well. So where is John Hinckley Jr. now, you ask? Are you a psychic? I heard you ask it. Are you You want to know. I'm a teleporting, and I'm <laughs> going to tell you right now. Hinckley went through some extreme mental health rehabilitation. Well, that's good. Over the years, his oversight has been loosened a little, just a little at a time. He was able to leave the hospital and visit family a few days a week to finally being able to live with his mother full time all while being monitored. Okay, sounds fair. In 2021, Hinckley's mother passed away. And a judge ruled that in 2022, he can be freed from oversight. Oh. He will still not be allowed near Jodie Foster, but he'll be living on his own for the first time in 40 years, so 
Some have worries about this decision. You know, I almost feel like that's failing him as well. Yeah, I kind of think that as well. For the first time in 40 years. They're just going to push him right out into society. Like, why wouldn't you just, like, slowly give him a little more freedom on his own? Like, obviously, they slowly, like, loosened up the oversight, but... I think he needs to be monitored in some way. There needs to be monitoring here. I mean, this is a man who tried to kill a president. Yeah, he's still not allowed around Jodie Foster, but, like, can we stop pretending that they care about boundaries here? Right. seen any stalkers that are like, ooh, okay. But that's kind of like the thank whole you for that. thing about the being whole a stalker. Is you go past the boundaries. Right. So what are we doing here? Well, Hinckley's lawyer is reported as saying, quote, I would hope that people will see this as a victory for mental health. This is the real message in this case, that people who have been ravaged by mental disease with good support and access to treatment can actually become productive members of society. While I agree that like, I hope that this is a victory for mental health, I don't think we've yet seen that. It's hard to just go, well, I hope it turns out okay. Right. It's one of those things we don't know if it's going to, so it's like, Ugh. and if it does, that's wonderful, and that is a yeah. great victory for mental health. But, but the risk not, reward is a little yeah. scary, and he can't already say that like it already is. Yeah, because we don't know. It hasn't happened yet. He hasn't been let out, so we don't know if this is a victory or not. Right. Ugh, that's scary. Tough. I would say that um, trying to murder a president for a celebrity that you feel you are in love with because you watched her in a movie where she played a character is definitely number one. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with the podcast research gods. I would agree with that one. Yeah, sure. definitely. And then this is part two also, so I can't really think of anything that was left off. No, in fact, I'm very impressed that this many have been found. I know, seriously. Like, when does this end? Are we going to have Impressed and disheartened. Yeah, impressed in the most horrific way. Exactly. Really. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which I hope you do, because here you are, you can follow Morbid anywhere you listen to podcasts or you can follow us on Instagram at Morbid Podcast or on Twitter at A Morbid Podcast. We hope you keep it weird until Monday and continue to respect people's boundaries. Please. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo, with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein. Research by Jay Cahio. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie. Who were they really? Real Pirates is a new Spotify original from Parcast. Join us starting November 15th as we bring the true story of pirates to life.